We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with episode 40 of the Rock Art Podcast. Today, we are blessed to have Carlos Gallinger who's a world-class expert on the behavior and wildlife and activities of the wild desert bighorn sheep of the deserts of California and the Great Basin. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're pleased and blessed to have a true guest scholar, a, a rare jewel, and that is Carlos Gallinger. He uh, was a former guest in the early times of this podcast. He's one of those rare birds that has tremendous experience, I'd say 40 years or more experience studying bighorn sheep and also serving as a hunting guide and understanding both from a almost a Native American standpoint, indigenous standpoint, but also from the uh, wildlife biologist perspective about the uh, character, nature, behavior of bighorn sheep, desert bighorn sheep specifically, and in turn the relationship that has to both rock art and to the native way of, of viewing the world. Carlos, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? Well, I guess I'll introduce myself a little bit. Just kind of... Please do. Please do. So basically, I live out in the Mojave Desert. I've just the way my life unwound. I've spent an extraordinary amount of time out in the field. As a young man, I wanted to get into big game hunting, and there wasn't much for deer or elk or anything where I lived. So I studied the bighorn sheep, and uh, as you study the sheep, you have to learn their environment, their biomechanics, and of course, you keep running up against petroglyphs and archaeology and and an understanding of time through things like game trails and 
things like that that give you a deeper understanding of, of the creature and the, the habitat. And that's kind of who and what I am. And then I spent many years on and off as a hunting guide. And that gives you a different perspective on wildlife because you have to close the deal as it were. Even today, a person might come home and say, hey, I made a killing, which means you did something good. It was bountiful or whatever. And that's what you have to do in hunting. You have to actually, in a limited period of time, make a killing. And you have to figure out the environment, the sheep's mentality, their habits, all from the ground, the weather, and put it all together and make a stock and get close enough to make a killing. Making a killing is not something that you can do in a vacuum. It's not like killing a farm animal. You have to outsmart it. You have to you have to camouflage yourself to be as the desert. Uh, you have to work invisible forces such as the wind and so on. And so it, it makes a, a difference than, than just butchering an animal. It's a very different process that not many people know today and even less when it comes to the desert bighorn sheep and i think that's alan when we met that's what kind of our connection your understanding of time was what you know being an archaeologist yeah that's that's definitely kind of i recognized and i think you saw carlos give give our listeners an understanding of how you can possibly come to understand bighorn sheep behavior I know you have to do this in terms of living out in the desert. How do you go about uh, gathering the information to understand bighorn sheep? What do you do? Well, nowadays you spend a lot of time with binoculars and telescopes, spotting scopes as we call them. Okay. And you need good equipment and you need to spend literally hours and literally days and weeks sometimes it's not unusual when we spend a whole week getting up every morning, finding a sheep or a group of sheep and watching them all day at a distance where they're not affected by my presence. And that's what you do day after day, month in and month out. And normally I only work when I did work like three months a year. So I had a lot of time to do this kind of stuff. Don't you have to have a lot of patience to do that, infinite amount of patience? That must be, isn't it wearing on you to have to watch these animals or, or experience them? Or, is, or do you have some sort of a joy by doing this? It's a joy. It's an ever-ending fascination. And, and you learn, you know, you wonder how they learn to, you know, behave at one spring. And then you go to another one to see if they do the same or you find a game trail that you can't figure out why that's there. And it takes you maybe several years to find a, a reason and understanding as to what's going on. For instance, at some springs, the biomechanics of the sheep come into play. And so there's a trail that they tend to come into the spring and then another trail that they tend to leave the spring. And it's all because of their head weight or their dexterity the terrain, the wind, all plays into these attributes and, and behaviors. And the more you learn, the more you can put together. It's, there's some sort of micro-environmental factors here that relate to sort of these precise locations of their game trails 
the thing that excited me that that I found so extraordinary is when we when we uh, talked to one another and said, you know what, Carlos, I've I've really never seen a bighorn sheep in the wild. And he says, well, I, I've got a way for you to see it, Alan. He says, how's that? He says, I, well, if you just come in the summer down to this place called Zizek's, you could probably uh, see uh, quite a number of them. You and I decided to put together a class and we didn't know how that would work. And then uh, you said, well, Alan, take the class and be quiet, get up at, you know, early in the morning and take them out here. And if we wait, we have a, you know, an odds on chance of seeing them. Well, then lo and behold, there they were, big as life, walking right by us. And I got to see them literally all day. And for days, they're wandering around that facility. And I'd, I'd never been so happy in my life. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. And, and there's all kinds of places, once you understand them, that that the sheep use in other places they don't or don't use very often. I'm studying a place right now on top of a mountain, a, a sky island, if, if you know what that is. Why don't you explain it? Well, it's a mountain range that's tall enough that the temperatures are cooler and it it works the atmosphere such that it rains more on top of it. And so it's it's greener, generally speaking, at the top than it is at the bottom. It, it, these mountains have to usually get at least three, four thousand feet and more often like five and six and seven thousand foot and they stand alone. And when you get that condition, you'll get what's known as, as a sky island. And right now I'm studying this one in this area where, of course, the winds have shaped the mountain over geologic time. But there's a place near the top where the current wind swirls, the prevailing wind swirls such that they that the softer material drops out, not unlike a, a Dyson vacuum cleaner. And so this powder lands in this little area, mm -hmm. maybe only 20 feet by 20 foot, not very big, certainly not more than 30 yards to the whole, the most of it. Yeah. And that dust attracts the smaller birds as a dust bath. And okay. doing so, they, spending time, they put droppings there. Mm -hmm. The droppings over time are so uh, chemically hot that the plants don't grow there. Oh. However, the sheep use it as a mineral source. Hmm. So all of a sudden, these ancient winds have shaped the mountain. The birds, which are kind of a akin to the wind, you have to, to understand birds in the desert, you really have to understand the wind. And, and their placement in the desert. Okay. So all this comes together, and then the sheep are behaving in accordance to the wind, but not the winds of the moment, the winds of the past, hmm. and getting minerals. And you have to kind of look at, to understand sheep in the traditional ancient way, you have to understand sheep like that. And that's when you start to see differences. Uh, another place on this mountain range there's eagles' nests, and they too put down a copious amount of droppings, and these two are used as um, mineral sources for the sheep. And of course, for the lambs, that the eagle is a, is a predator. Yeah. So there's a lot of dynamics that when and how things are used, the weather conditions, 
all, all play into it in an in in infinitely complex. And, and of course, this ends up, the ancient people knew this, and, and, and uh, you see these kind of things actually in the glyphs. You, you start to see, when you start to look at the glyphs, you'll see ideas and concepts. Of course, we can't read these glyphs like, a, like an Egyptian hieroglyph, but nevertheless, we can see things in them. I know where there's one in the Kosos where it's a human footprint with a sheep footprint in, in it. And they're going in different directions. And about the only time you get that is a kill. Whereas if the sheep footprint and the human footprint were going in the same direction, that would indicate a pursuit. Now, now whether that was happening at that point or how this ancient artist was trying to get something like that across, is that that becomes more mystical than than, than precise. But but you've been dealing with these kind of things for a long time where you kind of understand that. So if we're thinking about bighorn sheep and we're thinking about hunting and we're thinking about, you know, hunting either contemporary hunting or hunting in a native way, what are the factors that we have to think about to first, let's say, say locate a group of sheep? What do we, what does sheep need to live in the desert? Well, the one thing the sheep needs, you know, they, they need minerals. If there's places without minerals, actually, a lot of granite doesn't produce minerals. And mm -hmm. if it does, you'll find sheep at that very point. Uh, and water, of course, they need water, especially in the summer. The sheep are going to drink every day in the summertime, but they might go a month or two in the winter without drinking if the feed has got enough water in it and then they need what's called escape terrain and what is that the sheep has a certain build with his hooves his legs cardiovascular system so forth where on really rough terrain he can outdo a pack of wolves a mountain lion some coyotes they, they can move up an incredibly steep mountain with speed and dexterity that's unmatched and if they don't have that, then they're vulnerable to predators. So there's you can kind of look at an area and kind of bracket sheep behavior in it. And if there's if it's too ragged, then it allows predator to stalk them. And oftentimes, especially the rams they will hang out in places that are while they they try to get them some some steepness it can be very open and they'll hide in plain sight and in a group there's ear, ears and eyes noses in every direction and so it makes it very difficult for a predator to approach them close and so they have a collective awareness rather than a singular awareness and they're very they, they utilize this quite a bit so I guess there's these bachelor herds during most of the year. Is that right? Yeah, most of the time desert sheep are separated okay. until a breeding season. And it slowly comes in. It doesn't come in like, okay, okay today's breeding season. Mostly the, the ewes will be alone. And then as they start getting into estrus and such, the younger rams will come in. They'll reject them. And then during the midsummer when the really depth of the breeding season 
the big rams will be coming in and they'll push out the little rams. They'll, they'll beat them up to the point where they just have to leave. Uh, <laughs> no, I, quite, right. quite, they can be brutal. They'll break horns. They'll Ooh. hit each other in the sides. They'll kick each other in the private parts. It, 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 wow. it can be, and it, and this can go on for hours and even days. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. All right. I think, I, th- I think we have to stop there because we're almost out of time on this first, you know, segment. Okay. But I think in the next segment, we'll begin to drill down a little deeper and get into the uh, more specifics about maybe hunting and what that implies, both from a contemporary standpoint and one that the Native people, how that could have uh, left uh, remains or manifestations on the landscape that we find from an archaeological standpoint. And that'll be interesting. So see you on the flip-flop, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Well, welcome back to the Guard Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we have Carlos Gallinger here, who's a world-class expert on the desert bighorn. Carlos, uh, in the last segment... We started to get into some of the details and nuances of the behavior of these animals. And I think one of the questions that I hear most often is, how do you hunt a bighorn? And what kinds of archaeological or even rock art manifestations might we see in association or, you know, correlated with or related to hunting? Well... All hunts start with a prepared, you know, and getting ready. And, and then, but once you're out in the field, you know, you just have to have some idea of where they're already at. And more precisely in the modern hunt, of course, where a ram is, because we don't hunt the females. Whereas in the past, that would have been fair game. You would have hunted females, males, whatever you could get, because it was, well, there was a ceremonial and spiritual component, especially of, of desert bighorn sheep. Food was a primary reason for the hunt. And I guess that's the big difference today is that modern hunters don't hunt with the desperation of the ancient hunters. But as far as looking at springs and the the terrain and archaeologically kind of looking at it, a lot of springs in desert bighorn sheep country, if you see petroglyphs at it, there's a good chance that that's a spring 
that at least at one time was utilized by the desert bighorn sheep. And then you look at the droppings and tracks, you look at the game trails and see if they're being used. A, a game trail can literally last thousands of years. When I first started really looking into the bighorn sheep, I was doing a lot of it in the newberries. And those game trails looked as fresh as can be, yet they hadn't had sheep on them, some of them for a hundred years. But then as time went on, that population increased to the point where now you can look at that same game trail and its contour on the land is essentially the same, but you'll see tracks, droppings, and a certain amount of churn from the hooves. Whereas if you go into like the Marble Mountains, those game trails have always been active by a large group of sheep. And there's a lot more churn in the land, especially on the game trails. And you look at this kind of churn and make a diagnosis as to whether the sheep are currently there or not. In fact, there's several mountain ranges, number of mountain ranges, actually. The marbles being one of them that has a, a glyph site that where the sheep jump off to go to another mountain range and that jump off point the sheep use within 20 or 30 yards and have for thousands of years there's a space a little peninsula if you will kind of jutting out into the flats of the desert and it's got these glyphs and when i'm guiding in that area that's one of the places i go to and I look to see which way the traffic is. Is it off into the other mountain range? Or is the traffic back into the into the marbles? Or has there been no traffic between them? And then you just start putting it together. You think, well, there's no traffic between them. Then you get up and some of you walk into some of the trails and you look in the marbles and you say, well, these are here. The, these, these sheep are here. And I know they haven't left to the other mountain range. So you start putting together, and then, of course, a lot of optics, 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 optics. I've got spotting scopes, binoculars, tripods, and that's one of the differences between a modern hunt and an ancient hunt is optics. And you just spend hours. And then, of course, sheep get sheep. So you find a young ram and say, well, that's nothing worth hunting about. But you watch him because he might be pestering some old ram for days. And, you know, the old ram will just get up and like, as soon as he's turned, that young ram turns around, the old ram just disappears over the ridge because he's sick and tired of button heads with that idiot young ram, you know, and the young ram is button rocks and trees and eating and just goofing off. And after the end of the day, it's like, hey, where's my old buddy? And he's going to go looking for him, you know, and he can smell him. You know, he can look and, and he, he'll find that old ram way better than you ever would. Wow. So you just got to sit back and say, you know, is that old, is that young ram? Did he have somebody with him? Do I waste the day looking at him? Do I go up this canyon instead and glass up that canyon? And it's just a constant trying to mesh yourself with the reality of the environment and the reality of that particular animal that, is in a sense imaginary. Like, where would this old ram be if, if he was around? So I know that when I've studied this, at least more from an academic standpoint, there's a couple of different ways 
that we see features, prehistoric archaeological features that appear to relate to native hunting of bighorn sheep. And I think you know what those are. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, game trails and there's also hunting blinds. Hunting blinds. There's also dummy dummy hunters and there's there's game intercept diversion fences, as they're called as well. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that you can do and have left some, some evidence on the land. I know where there's a geoglyph that's a sheep you know, and it has some odd placements to it. But a lot of times, like a a hunting blind, if you come across a hunting blind, you know that that place was significant for years to these people. And if you're in an area that's sheep, now you can be a hunting blind for deer or or elk or, Mm -hmm. or, or antelope and so forth, but you have found a place that figures into the strategy for probably decades, if not centuries, or maybe better yet, generations, mm-hmm. where father and son said, here, if it's a windy day and it's been a wet, wet rainy year, this is where you want to go. Or if it's a dry year, go over here. And you can tell that that strategy was valuable enough for them to use it over and over again. And then that, it's like a puzzle. You get one piece, you can then in your mind's eye, begin to understand places maybe miles away because you say, well, why is there's, you might be a dry creek that you don't see any water in, but why is there a hunting blind here? Well, because that was the last or the only place water was oftentimes. Now it's rarely so, but that still tells you that maybe in a wet year, the sheep know that. And then sheep will know stuff like that We've got radio callers. Now, I've knew, known this from other ways, but the more traditional way. But we've seen radio collared rams and, and ewes get up one day and just walk 40 miles across the desert and with pinpoint accuracy go right to a spring. So we know that they can do that. And when you start seeing a hunting blind there, you know that there's if there's a, still a sheep population there, and there's still whatever remains of that issue, whether it's a mineral deposit, whether it's a what they call a escape train. Sometimes between two mountain ranges, you'll find a little branch of rough terrain, and that's what we call escape terrain. And that'll be a choke point where sheep, maybe hundreds and back then thousands of sheep and thousands of sheep in the other range would be focused through this area to come from one mountain range to the other and there will be glyphs there will be hunting blinds all these kind of things will be there now when you get into like dummy hunters and stuff like that then you're talking about a different site you're talking about a site that's a drive site and that's kind of indicative you're going to find like a somewhere near there a heavy camp where the women and children were and you're going to find a site that was probably used over and over again. So different things. Sometimes a hunting blind can be really the remains of a blind where there's just a few rocks, but the rocks were used to hold bushes in place, not necessarily hide behind. As I told you one time, I found a hunting blind that was actually 
must have took a lot of work to make, and it was an atlatl, the circle with the line, hunting blind, right near a spring. And so you'll find a lot of these these things. And then, of course, the game trails are often the most overlooked uh, thing that gives you a lot of information. And a game trail just has so much information in it, how much it was used, when it was used, oftentimes which direction, whether it was to a mineral site, whether it was a mineral site. You know, sometimes a game trail would cut up and down and zigzag and they're actually feeding. It's not a it's not a to anywhere, it's the destination. And you look at these things and you begin to understand not only what the sheep were doing, but the people as well. And have a better understanding of their interaction. So that particular trail that goes up and up the face of that basalt flow just south of Little Lake. Is that a game trail or is that a human trail? I've come to believe to it to be not only a human trail, but okay. but one that they actually put work into it. And there's a couple of interesting things. If you remember, I thought it might have been an elk trail. Right. And you told me there was no sign of elk in that area. No. And no. that kind of changed my mind because there was, at the bottom and at the top, there are hazards or whatever you would call you know the, the way it works yeah it, it, a cow couldn't make it a cow mm-hmm. could not make could not make traverse that trail because no. at the top and at the bottom there there's rock piles and stuff that they just they cows can go in some pretty amazing places but right. that that would stop them and that particular trail i even think is is in the glyph record in little petroglyph canyon Okay. There's there's some angle similarities and, and others, and I think that it's really a human trail because a human trail has some differences than a sheep trail. Sheep have a lot of focused pressure because they have hooves, and and they're they will a sheep will move across land because they can hop better. They're four footed. They're mm-hmm. more sure footed, you might say. Yeah, and there's just differences between a human and, and and you go down along the Colorado River, and you'll see long human trails that you can follow for miles, and you begin to see there's a difference. Just like there's a difference in a cow trail, the trail a lot of tra- ancient trails have been obliterated by the uh, burrows. They just obliterated a lot of ancient trails it's really kind of sad so so part of what you do i guess from what you've said is sort of you read the landscape you have to read the land and understand the micro environmental uh, effects that a hunter has to think about to find and kill a bighorn sheep right because it doesn't you know in a modern sense a lot of like and i don't want to be critical but a lot of biologists if they just see an animal, that's good enough. We'll go out, we'll run around, we'll do this, we'll do that, and there's some deer, some sheep, and whatnot. In hunting, whether ancient or, or modern, you got a specific time. In modern time, you got a specific animal, a ram, a large ram, in, in the case of sheep. And then you got to get close enough to make a kill. Now, the modern hunt, you have a rifle, which does have more range. And it makes a difference, but you also 
when you make the kill, a kill is a kill. You then have to deal with it. And even today, modern hunters will often, in, in an almost ceremonial manner, eat the liver, the testicles, uh, the heart. I've had many sheep heart in camp where you pull the animal all back to camp and, and, and actually have, like I say, really a, a ceremonial meal. And this is something that is kind of alien to our modern Western culture. But a culture 100 years ago of almost any place in the world, a ceremonial meal was nothing. You'd have it for a saint or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was a common or a festival. Yeah. You know, but today that still kind of happens and hunting still bears within it a lot of the ancient imprints of human and animal behavior that it, show, it shows up in the glyphs, it shows up in the game trails, it shows up in the strategies uh, that are still employed today. Again, it's a very different thing to hunt a sheep and to, and to butcher a cow. It, it, it's, a, it's a night and day difference because of what you have to go through to kill a sheep. And to give you an idea, in the modern world, I've been putting in for now, I guess this year will be my 40th year or something. Mm -hmm. for a tag and I've never gotten one. Right. So it, it's something that people, there's still a small group of people that essentially are a modern sheep cult that will spend money, time, effort of an extraordinary level uh, by modern standards to hunt a sheep. Now there's different cults. There's still an elk cult. There's still a bear cult. There's still you know, a, a deer cult. And, and these things still actually exist, and they exist in many ways. Right. Like the ancient ones, although we in modern world kind of miss some of the point of it. But but the idea, most, most of these modern cults, if you went to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or something, right. you'd right. find that they put a lot of effort in bringing the herd up, renewal, buying land, putting out feed, studying them to keep her herd up. And this was what the ancient cults did as well. Right. Let's continue that discussion on the next segment of our, which is the final segment. I'm sorry that it's there's right. so much to talk about. <laughs> and we'll uh, catch on the flip-flop. Thanks. Thanks, gang. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we have a guest scholar, Carlos Gallinger, world-class expert on bighorn sheep behavior and and its relationship to uh, a lot of the both contemporary hunters and native hunters throughout uh, prehistory. Carlos, we were just on the other segment trying to talk and drill down on, you know, what what is the psychology here behind native people drawing depictions of bighorn sheep on the rocks? And I'm sure you have something to say about that. Yeah, there, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, when you see bighorn sheep, of course, there's the classic Koso sheep, but there's other things, other details 
a common occurrence in the Great Basin glyphs is they're in lava. And you'll find oftentimes the nose, the heart, and the eye will be in the glyph, will have a, a, a bubble in the lava. that will actually make it sort of a, a 3D kind of experience, if you will. And so you start looking at, you know, and of course that's the, the kill, the heart, and the eyes and nose are the sensory perception. You'll see a lot of glyphs that uh, just like the ram's horns, just kind of a double arch. And it's probably some sort of count or something, who knows, or a blessing or a, or, or a prayer. We really don't know, but it, it's predominant in the art. And there's a lot of art that probably we don't know is connected to the sheep that is. The classic example would be the atlatl. Mm-hmm. Not only do we see it rendered as an absolute drawing of an atlatl, but we see it morph into a symbol. And of course, it's a tool of the hunt. Now, since these people hunted deer and birds and everything else that moved and crawled, you could call it hunting in general. But so many of these atlatls glyphs, and they're often in groups, or in areas where there are sheep glyphs. And so there's got to be some degree of association. So when we say, you know, the association with sheep, there, there's all kinds of glyphs that have sheep. There's actually, it's not real common, but it repeats itself. But there are sheep glyphs that the glyph is obviously a skinned out sheep where the legs or splayed out in a way that a living sheep couldn't do it. And you can tell the perspective is looking down on it. And you'll see this glyph once in a while. You'll also look at glyphs that you would think were a sheep, but in closer inspection, you'll find that it has a shorter neck that's lower on the body and that the legs are bent in a way that a sheep could never bend their legs. But a human in a crawling position, that would be a human how their legs would look. And then you'll see things like the headdress and stuff like that, that actually is in the glyph record. So you'll see a lot of sheep glyphs, but sometimes the sheep is rendered really poor, almost like just sticks. And other times rendered artistically like the, you know, the classic Koso sheep. And then you'll find them with full body filled-in bodies, patterned bodies, empty bodies, even some pregnant. So there's a lot of different sheep glyphs and a lot of information and a lot of emotion for the ancient people with these glyphs. And, and the glyphs were just a, a, a means to carry this information, this, this whether it was religious or whether it was bragging or, or what have you. But these people they weren't dumb. They understood that these etchings on the rocks would last for generations. And so there was a purpose. And we can see that also in the number of glyphs. You look at a, a glyph site, you say, oh my gosh, there's a hundred glyphs here or something. And you think that's a lot, but when you stop and think about how much we write today, and you figure that these, this glyph site might have been occupied once a year for three or four hundred years then you look at it and say you know there's really not a lot of glyphs here there were probably years and even decades where there wasn't a new glyph put on 
And it gives you some idea that these glyphs were not just some doodling, that they had uh, meaning. As well as there's a lot of glyphs that until you've looked at a lot of glyphs and compared them with that we now have the magic of digital photography, you would think we're just a one-off abstract. But then after a while, you start seeing that same glyph over and over again. And you start to understand that this was some sort of like limited, perhaps, but symbolic language. Maybe had four or five hundred universal glyphs that, that had a universal meaning. Probably some of them were local in geography and local in time. But still, you see a lot of glyphs that, again, if just a person walked around and went to one or two glyph sites, they'd say, oh, that's kind of an odd glyph, but never see it as one that repeats itself. And so it's one of the things that I have kind of found interesting that how many of these glyphs repeat themselves and sometimes in some strange ways. For instance, there's a, a glyph that looks like an H mm -hmm. and that H glyph or sometimes called an I bar. Mm -hmm. What's amazing to it is it'll have ornamentation or sometimes around it and one thing but the proportions are are weirdly uniform. The proportions are just like you just look at that and you just think that's just that can't be, you know, completely. Yeah, we're so we're seeing a, a means of communication, almost like I call it a visual shorthand, and that yeah. that the glyphs have the glyphs have meaning. They had meaning for the artisan who crafted them, and in fact, those that viewed the glyphs probably had some level of understanding of what they were intended to communicate. Do, do you agree? Yeah, and, and you find it even in the placement of glyphs, like a lot of glyphs will be almost always below a spring. You mm -hmm. don't usually find glyphs above a spring. And, okay. it, and, and humans are a lowland creature. You go usually up to a spring. It's not mm -hmm. normal for hunter I mean, you do it, but but it's just the camp with the women and children and stuff is like down in the valley, you know, typically. And there's a high spring, and it's one that the sheep use. And if you're going up to that, mm -hmm. then you want to look at, at, at where and how the glyphs might. And some are like hard to read, like why they put it here. But there's one I know of. It, it's, it's, it's an Ord Mountain. Mm -hmm. And if you go past it, you be, you you walk into sight of the spring. Mm -hmm. So it's actually one way or another, and it's got an atlatl and some dots. It's not a big sight, mm -hmm. just four or five glyphs. But if you walk past it, you come in sight of the spring. So some way, whether maybe it's like an old person saying, hey, go up the canyon. When you see the glyphs, stop, sneak carefully, look at the spring first. Or maybe it's a prayer that you're going into a more sacred territory if you pass that. You know, it's, it's a doorway kind of thing. I don't mm -hmm. know. But that, but that is interesting to consider or reflect about because we're talking about, you know, en entering a magical place, a sacred place, a place right. of some power in religion. It's also a place where they were able to garner game some way or other. I guess 
well, I guess, springs. The, the whole idea, you know, we, and this is just my philosophy, we have a more segmented society. Yeah. We go to church here, we go to court here, we go to supermarket there, we get our fixed, our car there. In, in this society, these, these ancient hunters, mm-hmm. hunting was their religion, it was their sport, it was their profession, it's the stuff they dreamed about, it was their pride, it was their standing in the culture. If you were a 13, 14-year-old boy and the man went off hunting and didn't get nothing and then you brought back a big ram, your status in the clan was going to go up. The older women are going to like, hey, I want my daughter to marry you because you can bring home the bacon, literally. Right. So hunting was everything to these guys. They couldn't think. There was no other profession. Even the shaman. If a shaman couldn't hunt, that's like Mm -hmm. saying, you know, a shaman's wife said, well, I better go to my sister to get food because the shaman can't. He he can't understand the wind. He can't understand the rains. He can't understand the soil and the rocks. Well, that would be no shaman at all. So the religious leaders really had to be, had to have tremendous expertise in animal behavior and understanding animals. And from my right, reading, which is an they, invisible they, force. They, they, the shamans were also hunt leaders often. And well, they had, not they, often. They had to be. They had to be. They had to be. Exactly. They had okay, to be. good. Because they would get respect. I mean, yes. if you're feeding this guy and he can't feed himself or mm-hmm. his family, you're not yeah. going to respect him. Right, but if right. he's the old guy that maybe he's too crippled up and he can tell you, no, 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 guys, on a day like this, because this, or not even tell you, say, you know, because I, I've done this. I, I've, I've gotten to where I can often just say, you know, let's go around the side of this hill over here and there are probably some sheep. And wow, boom, there is. You know, and I can even pick oftentimes I'll look and hunt glyphs and I go out to hunt glyphs. Uh-huh. And then there's probably going to be some glyphs right about there. And I've and actually found glyphs with google earth where i just look at places and say oh this and this things line up right here and three days later i go out there and, and sure enough there's glyphs because there's rules they're they're they're, they're soft what's the preconditions that you look for on google earth that will tell you that there's glyphs this is interesting well it it gets it's again it's it's infinite and it and it's not science it's an art and it's it's gets to the point where you start there, saying, well, it's, it's a game trail. Uh, it's a natural drainage. Game trails, what there's kind of spring, soil? There's a spring here. Uh, looks like it, it, animals have been, you know, through this right. area. And like would there's, be through this area. There's there's a, and, two springs in in the uh, in the oh, what is it? Uh, anyway, it's a it's a mountain range out by Ludlow. Okay, and. Two springs a mile apart. One, the sheep use during the summer every day. We've had game cameras on it one time for four years straight. and Mm -hmm. only saw one coyote pass through and two mountain lions. Uh The other spring a mile away, you get eagles, you get uh, ravens, you get bobcats, coyote, fox, every predator, every kind of creature in the world, but rarely... Do you get a bighorn sheep? And when you do, it's an older ram. Mm-hmm. And, and the other one, it, like the, all the animals, and, and once you start delving into escape terrain, minerals, etc., you start to see why. And and then you start to look for petroglyphs. And sometimes I'll look for petroglyphs and not find them. That's not at all 
unusual not to find so it's not uncommon that the oftentimes are absent sometimes where the bighorn sheep are today yeah and and the glyph you know one you have to have glyph type stone yes and so you don't see them as often in granite granite will patina and do that but if they decided to just paint the glyphs well that those that those glyphs are long long gone Long you know, gone, they're, huh? they're, they're long gone, yeah. and there's plenty of evidence that a lot of glyphs at one time were painted. Yes. Uh, you see it over and over again where you'll find glyphs in an overhang, and there's there's remnants of paint. A lot of glyphs have, have been washed away. They were pictographs and not glyphs, right. and they're just not there. Uh, they were there, but they're not there now. And then the landscape tends to have a sheep for instance there's a place where there's a lot of minerals and the Mm -hmm. sheep go there Mm -hmm. and the water source is barrel cactus really and yeah and so the but the barrel cactus is only going to be a water source under precise conditions it's got to get the water and then process that water have enough time and enough heat energy to move that water up into the barrel and then hydrate the the bulk of the barrel. And when that condition hits, bighorn sheep will actually live out there in the summer and they'll break open a a barrel cactus and get all the water from their food that they need. And then if there's minerals in that area, then that's water. And in that same area, there's high sand dunes, high angle Uh sand dunes, Uh many of them in shade. And what happens is that shade and that sand allows for annual plants, big, leafy, green annual plants oh, yeah. to grow. Yeah. And that's a water source. So they're, it's But it's not a water for source yeah. for your coyote, your bobcat, your mountain lion, your fox. That's not a mountain water source for them. Ah, so I it see. excludes the predators and includes the sheep. And the sheep, unlike, say, a rabbit, mm-hmm. A rabbit will never go, he, he probably never goes past a quarter mile from where he's born. Certainly not oh, a mile. I, I mean, he's a very localized animal. He lives and dies. Whereas a sheep, because of their brain and because of their, their size, their biomechanics, can say, you know, I'll bet you if we walk over here 10 that miles, very far, don't they? that area's got the, and, and they'll go there and they say, well, the barrel cactus haven't got the water yet, but the leafy oh. green stuff is, is good. Or they'll get there and find out, you know what? It's all bad. Yeah. And we got to go back to the spring. Okay. But a turtle, a jackrabbit, you know, field mice, rats, they can't do that. Right. The sheep can. Well, let's let's try to close out. We've only got about a minute left. What do you think the uh, listeners of a rock art podcast might want to know uh, or might take away if sort of your a summary of what we've gone through here for about the last hour? What's the uh, takeaway from our discussion? Well, the, the, the sheep are still sheep. People have changed their habits immensely with technology. We can have guns and octaves and coats and cars and so forth. But the sheep are still the sheep. So to understand the glyphs, if you understand the sheep, the glyphs and the sheep, that relationship is frozen in time. It hasn't changed. People have changed. But even then, some of the components of the human behavior has not or changed not so much. And so there is some 
understanding in the glyphs. There is still a message that is still there, that is still attainable. It may not have been as finite and exact as people of that culture were knowing of them, but there's they're not mute but it's they, still they available still have, to those who want to listen and reflect and they're study. still part of our culture part of our living culture that's fantastic well carlos it's an honor and a blessing to talk to you again especially in this context where we get to uh, broadcast and share your insights and wisdom on bighorn sheep behavior and the nature of the relationship to native american culture thank you ever so much carlos for gracing our podcast thank you See you again sometime. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.